What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. What are you not aware of that's probably killing your ability to build an elite team? The person that's gonna help us answer the question, uh, she is the founder and CEO of Compt. Compt is a personalized lifestyle employee benefits platform. She's been a three-time CFO, a two-time COO, 20 years of experience in leadership. I have zero idea what she's gonna bring to the table in terms of this conversation about building elite teams. Amy Sperling, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And for those that are listening, that was sarcasm. I know that I glossed over a lot of detail in your background and experience. So I think it's important for us to level set and get the listeners up to speed on what I missed and what else you feel is important about your background that's going to inform this discussion that we're going to have. You hit all the high points, obviously, or the, the big highlights. The pieces that I think I would include or add a little bit more color around would be of my six prior companies prior to starting Compt. They were all global teams. Most of them spanned many states. And so there's a lot of reach when I was looking at how to build and expand and hire teams. Several have been fully remote. Some have been in office. So there's a lot of variety there for how we've I've thought about building teams, worked with leadership teams to build out teams. And then that really informed how I decided to build Compt, my first company that I founded. I think there's an opportunity for us to dig into something. This is not your first rodeo in terms of building teams, and it sounds like you took a remote or hybrid approach even back when that wasn't really a thing. Share with us a little bit about some of the things that you learned in repeatedly building remote and hybrid teams and how that informed your style and your build out of Compt one of the companies that I was part of, this was 2008 through 2014, we had a lot of locations. So it wasn't specifically hybrid, but even the leadership team was not in the same location. And we would work from our own houses sometimes. So a very early version of hybrid. What I learned there was how difficult that was when you weren't local to the main head office. And so I took a lot of lessons around thinking about communication, design of working together as a team to make sure that everyone had the right information at the right time. When I started Compt, I specifically did not want to build a remote team. I was like, this is very hard. You have to be very intentional. I want everybody together at least most of the time. And we started out with, I'm based in Boston, and the early team was based in Boston as well, where we would do three days a week together. We would do Tuesday through Thursday together, primarily because Boston traffic is terrible. And so none of us wanted to spend time commuting on Mondays and Fridays. And so it was really a function of just being very pragmatic and practical around how people spend their time in their lives. You've had to balance your approach based on what was right for the team, what was right for the conditions, what was right for the location. It's a very pragmatic approach. How would you respond to a lot of leaders today who are advocating for almost a 
or else philosophy when it comes to the discussion of remote versus hybrid versus on-site. And to be more clear, we've seen so many people say we have to get everybody back into the office 100% of the time. What's your response to that sort of edict? I don't love edicts in general, uh, but I think that for two and a half, three years, we've proven that remote work can work very well. There are some downsides to it. I don't think it's all glossy upside. Sometimes communication is harder. You have to be very intentional and thoughtful in how you do that. I personally believe that a lot of this push, particularly by large companies for the come back to the office or else, though, has some underlying ulterior motives. I'm a former CFO. The, it's a lot cheaper for people to quit than to pay them severance. And so if you're looking to scale back a team, not pay severance and not have to file anything with these states, specifically around the Warren Act, it's a lot easier to have them quit. And one way to force that is folks who are living and have moved over the past three years with outside of commuting range, trying to force them back is a good way to push that button. It's my own personal opinion of what's happening. I have no insider knowledge, but if I was a CFO in one of those big companies and looking at ways to cut costs, it would certainly occur to me. That little bit of insight about the Warren Act, uh, I hadn't even considered it because my brain automatically went towards a, a couple of different areas. One, you have a lot of large corporations and CEOs with corporations and also private equity firms that have vested interests in commercial real estate. So there's probably mm -hmm. a component of that 100%. That's, that's driving that. But the Warren Act is pretty important. I'd like you to give us a little bit more detail on the Warren Act. It has everything to do with making your state aware of mass layoffs or layoff intentions that you're planning on doing. So share with us a little bit about how that ties together, and then we'll dive into the actual conversation that we're going to have. I'll give you broad strokes on it. I wouldn't say I'm fully versed on the Warren Act because my teams have never had to go through those types of layoffs. But if you're doing a large scale layoff in many of the states in the U.S., you have to notify the state that this is going to be happening. You have to provide notice as well to employees in much of the time. Think specifically places like California. We saw this come into play when Twitter started doing big layoffs. And then there was pushback from employees that were like, hey, this is outside the scope of the Warren Act. So you are required in certain states depending on the size of the layoff, to do some regulatory filings and then also to be providing notice and severance and things like that to employees, depending on the state. And there's a lot of other factors, but a lot of companies don't want to do that. Obviously, you don't want to have to tee up and alert a state or anyone else to the fact that you're going to be doing large scale layoffs. So it's something that companies certainly would prefer not to have to do. Who knew that you were going to get a remote versus hybrid versus on-site primer on this episode? <laughs> we didn't even tee that up in the beginning. Let's dive into the meat of the discussion. The intent of our show is to help busy people leaders do more with less and really arm them with those game changer lessons from senior leaders uh, across the country. So when you think about your experience and you think about those game-changing moments that really shifted the way that you show up, the way that you lead teams, the way that you grow organizations and build high-performance teams. What was that game-changing realization? I'd been part of six companies. I was either a CFO or a COO previously, all tech companies, all with typical tech company kind of demographics, primarily 70%, 80% white men, and then some portion people of color, women, but very skewed demographics. 
So I knew I wanted to do something different than that when I started my own company. I believe that there's a, a power in having diversity on your team. You have different perspectives. You have different ideas around the table. You can problem solve in a different way. It's just, to me, a lot more efficient and made a lot of sense. One of the things that I did for myself as I started thinking about, all right, how do I want to build this team here at Compt, was recognizing that I taking a look at my own network. And so one of the things I did was I was just curious one day, I was like, all right, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and just scan through my contacts, the folks that I'm connected to, because my personal assumption going into it, I was like, I'll bet that I have a pretty heavy bias towards white women, for instance, I'll bet my network is pretty heavy in that because people tend to have networks that look like them. And so I went in, I was scanning page after page, and I was pretty proud of myself for a couple of minutes there because it looked like it was about 50-50, just anecdotally looking through. I was like, okay, I've got a pretty decent gender split. But then I had this punch in the face when I realized I was scrolling at page after page of only white people. My, my network was very much still one perspective. And I realized that was a huge gaping hole, both in just the perspective I have on the market and building a tech company and just a loss of knowledge and a loss of access to that knowledge. And so that was a pretty big aha moment for me that if I really wanted to build a diverse team, I, I needed to know a bunch of people that didn't look like me and didn't have my background or didn't live in my geographical area. And so I needed to start being very intentional about how I went about building my network because it wasn't going to happen organically just in my local coffee shop. One of the things that I find interesting about that is one, the leaders that I've talked to that won't even consider looking at those demographics within their own networks. We both know that when we're looking at sales organizations, it is predominantly white, it's predominantly male, even though that the data shows that women-led sales organizations actually outperform male-led sales organizations. Hat tip to Carrie uh, Simpson, who got that research in front of me. We know within sales what the demographics looks like, and it, it, it's often worse than what it is in B2B tech. But what was interesting is that there was a recent panel that was on and I noticed that the, the panel had gender diversity, but it didn't really have any people of color on it. And I messaged their CEO and the CEO had three times the network that I did. And he's asking me for who do I know? And I'm like, I'm happy to give you <laughs> referrals, but you have a 25,000 person network. Maybe you, right. there's got to be somebody in there that you should look at. I'm curious what got you to the point to even consider what is my network makeup? There had to be some sort of trigger that prompted mm. you to look at that and examine it because that's a level of self-awareness that I rarely see amongst executives. I, I don't know that I'd give myself credit for self-awareness. It was a moment of curiosity, I would say for myself, because what I was worried about as I started a company, I, I understand that I have biases, unconscious bias, just like everyone else. And I know one of my easiest hires for me to make is typically a white woman at the age of 30 or 31. It's where my career took off. It's the first time I became CFO. I know that I do a lot of the projection work that people do where it's, oh, you're just like me and you're going to be amazing. And you put all the things that you did on somebody else. So I know I have that in myself and I have to keep a constant check on myself for that. So as I was thinking about how to build the company and knowing that I wanted to have a diverse team, because I do see so much power in those teams and all the data says the same thing as well. Diverse teams perform better. I realized I needed to go and look and see if my network was only a reflection of myself. And so it really was curiosity to see just how much 
my bias was going to be impacted by that. Because just like you mentioned in the example, people ask me all the time, hey, who do you know who could be on a panel or on a podcast? And if my go-to list is people that are just like me, it provides some gender diversity, maybe some sexual orientation diversity, but it's missing a whole lot of other perspectives as well. And so I was just, I was curious and was like, I wonder what that's going to look like. And so I went in and was happy on one front and not so happy on some others. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. There's an aspect of what you're talking about that I find really interesting. And it's the idea of when you're building an organization and you want the broadest access possible to the widest talent pool possible, doesn't it logically make sense, especially if you're diversity focused to lean more towards a remote or distributed environment because that's going to give you access to talent pools that you wouldn't have access to if you're confined to a 20 mile radius around your corporate office. A hundred, hundred percent. When we started the company in Boston, we did have some early diversity uh, on the team, uh, making sure we did some work to find people with different backgrounds because that's what I knew we also needed here. Our first engineer actually started his career as an EY accountant. Fantastic. Like we're a tax compliance based software. Couldn't have dreamed up a better engineer to start um, with us. But I also knew that hiring when you're coming from Boston is likely going to reflect Boston demographics, which are very white. And so that was going to be a limiting factor for us. When we got pushed early on with the pandemic to go fully remote, that's when I was like, all right, if we're fully remote anyways, let's start hiring all over the place. And that's when things really took off for us. We've got a little pocket of folks in Little Rock. We've got some folks in the Philadelphia area. we got people all over the place. But it, it just opens up a world of other talent. And beyond even ethnicity or diversity or ethnicity or gender diversity, what that opened up as well was geographical perspective. If you are only in New York, Boston, the Bay Area, California, you are going to get a very tech-focused, tech bubble perspective in building a company. We are building a platform that should reach every employee. I want perspectives from the Midwest. I want perspectives from the South. I want perspectives from companies that think differently than tech bubble companies. One of the reasons why I'm a pretty staunch advocate for remote work or at least hybrid work in some sense is that my lens, when I look at the pandemic, is that it was the great equalizer in terms of access to phenomenal life-changing opportunities. And during that time I was in the recruiting space, it changed the game in terms of giving really qualified people access to those positions that they, if you were limited to a commute, they oftentimes wouldn't be able to apply for or even be considered. I want to tie back together from your answer is when you're trying to build an elite team, why did you pick out the concept of bias or the concept of unconscious bias as something that you wanted to avoid when you're building that high performance team? Why was that important? I, I try and read a lot, especially in this space, trying to understand 
where I need to do better personally. And that's one of those places where I, I'm sure I had read a book right before that, because that was about the time I was reading about unconscious bias that probably triggered that. But recognizing that I have work to do is really important because ultimately I can build a diverse team, bring on a lot of folks here, but if they don't have a voice, if they don't feel like they have an ability to share their perspectives, if I'm shutting people down, if I'm bulldozing over them, that's not going to create the most highly impactful team, the most highly productive team. And so I'm constantly thinking about, all right, there are things I don't know. I come from an area that is a very small, very rural town where it's 98% white. I, I understand that I'm coming from a very specific perspective and there's a lot I don't know. And so I'm trying to continue to educate myself so that I can do better. I certainly trip myself up many times, but keep trying to do better and figure out ways to create an environment that really does foster a team dynamic where people feel heard and like they have ownership. When we look at building that sort of environment and you've learned some things during this journey, what are some of the pitfalls that people who are trying to do the same thing? come to terms with their unconscious bias, build a team that's representative, build a team where everybody has a voice. What are some of the pitfalls that you ran into that people should be on the lookout for if they want to execute the same thing that you've done over the years? One of the things that I found that I was running into was, I, again, going back to the place where I know my bias tends to go, that 30-something white woman with a similar background to me. We communicate very easily with each other. We have a shared perspective. We can shortcut to answers. I've made some amazing hires that were folks with that demographic. What I realized as I was going through an interview process is that not everyone interviews the same and not everyone communicates in the same way, either because there's neurodiversity or just they just communicate differently than I communicate. And so I needed to take a step back as I was going through that interview process to assess, can this person do the job? And look at trying to make it more skills-based or more focused on outcomes rather than the way they were communicating and then working to figure out how we communicate together. Because if I was just trying to create an environment where everyone communicates in the easiest way for me, I'm going to have a very one-nord organization. So I needed to be very flexible on that and create space for that as well. Otherwise, we were going to have a mess. We tend to communicate better with people who are like ourselves is I think what I gather from what you're describing. If we recognize that and we're deliberate about looking for different, bringing on different, what was the process that you went through to create the space for effective communication when you're sitting across from somebody that probably doesn't have the same sort of wavelength that you're on? I would ask a lot more questions. And so that was really important for me. So asking questions in different ways, if I didn't quite understand the answer or it wasn't quite hitting the note, asking questions in a different way, also leaving space for people to express themselves in different ways. So a lot of our interview processes here, we try and keep them as lightweight as possible because I don't think Canada should be doing work for free by any stretch. But not every job needs to have an oral communicator. Maybe they're more written. Maybe they are more auditory. However they want to communicate, figuring out what that is as quickly as possible, and then working within that to see how they want to share their information. As we've 
built out the team, we've also needed to create space for that. Not everyone communicates in the same way um, on our team. Some folks are more quiet and reserved, want to sit back, want to observe, want to share their thoughts after the fact. Some don't like to share things publicly. They'd rather do it in a, a direct message just because that's where they're more comfortable. And some are the bulldoze into the room and are going to make everybody laugh with a joke. Creating space for each and then making sure that the entire team recognizes this is how we operate so that every voice gets heard is something that we continue to iterate on and make sure happens here. In the interview process, I like the, the taking different angles and asking questions and then giving room for answers and then looking at different ways people communicate and creating space for that. It seemed like you've incorporated that into the onboarding and leadership team lead process too. Walk us through at a high level how you've carried that from the interview process to the team dynamics process so that it works well because oftentimes organizations will fall over on the onboarding side in making these things real. A big piece of it is calling it out, saying this is what we're doing, this is how we're approaching it, not trying to let it just happen organically without thought or structure. Having everyone on the team, especially in that onboarding process, understand and go through, okay, not everyone communicates in the same way. Having everybody welcome the person, creating space for that person and showing them how our own cultural norms around this and then continually reiterating. I don't feel like these are the types of things you can talk about too much. The more you're transparent in your approach and what you want to accomplish with the team and the more that is a stated thing the more people get on board with it and can also help support it. The team holds me accountable if I'm not creating the space that we need to have or or if we need to create, if somebody didn't get to ask a question but wanted to and they noticed somebody on a camera I didn't notice. The team is looking out for each other in that so that it's a culture that is not just driven by me, but it's a culture we've built as a team and we all are moving that forward. Before we close down, I think it's gonna be helpful for you to share a bit of a paint by numbers version of how other leaders can build this type of organization that's intentional about diversity. What are the key things that other people leaders need to watch out for when they're trying to execute this? For, for me personally, it was being curious and wanting to build that type of an organization is obviously a first step. If you don't want to build that organization, you've got a different hurdle to cross. If that's your intention, then you, you likely need to educate yourself a bit on what that means. Reading things about unconscious bias or the how to be an anti-racist book certainly is not going to hurt you in that process. From there, I think it's not about making this, hey, let's solve for this now that we're a team of 150. If you're there in the early days, this should be part of the framework as early as possible. For us, it was day one. To me, diversity is not something that is a check the box down the road. It's part of our secret sauce. You know, we can operate at the same level of many of our competitors, but with 60% of the team because we've got really talented people with very different perspectives, problem solving. That makes us more capital efficient. This was a day one solution. So making that an intentional thing, a stated thing, doing the work on hiring and making sure that you are seeing diverse candidates, but that goes back to Look at your network, look at the networks you're pulling from, require the recruiters you work with to put diverse slates of candidates in front of you. And if they don't, either find new recruiters or wait until they do, because guarantee you're not seeing the best possible candidate if you're seeing the same type of candidate over and over again. 
And so being very intentional in that hiring process, once people are onboarded, I think it's about creating that safe space where it's not just hiring junior folks and having all your diversity sitting at the junior level. It should be reflected throughout your organization. For us, it goes all the way up to the board level. And otherwise, if my board isn't diverse, my management team's not going to be diverse and neither is anybody else on the team. And so being very thoughtful uh, and strategic about that, I think is important because otherwise it feels diversity paint on the same old story yet again. So I think there's places that you have to be very intentional and working on your network. Like for me, it was getting outside of, I was going to the same coffee shop in Kindle Square over and over again. I'd see a lot of the same types of folks. It, for me, it was going to different types of events in different neighborhoods and meeting with other types of founders and going outside of my own city to help expand that network. And then building from that place it helped us build a much better team. Great stuff, Amy. A couple last things before we close down. Where can people find you? You can find me at on LinkedIn, Amy Sperling. You can find me on Twitter, still calling it Twitter, at Amy Sperling. I had one of the early accounts. Or you can find us at our website, comps.io. I appreciate you hanging out with us on the HR Impact Show. There's a ton of things that I picked up. I have a full page of notes from the conversation. I think if you follow that framework, a lot of people leaders can impact any kind of change that they're looking to impact. Amy, appreciate you hanging out with us. For those of you who have listened to the conversation, give us a review and let us know how we did and tune in next time where we'll have another great leader talking to us and sharing their insights about how to build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.